Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 227 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to start the show with a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. It's the action, not the fruit of the action, that's important. You have to do the right thing. It may not be in your power, may not be in your time, that there'll be any fruit. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, hope you're well. I'm good, thank you very much. Well, do you know what? This week I am doing a best of, and I'll tell you for why. Because if you're anything like me at the moment, you're probably feeling torn between wanting to be a global citizen and keep up with the news and then wanting to forget all about it and bury your head in the sand. And that's because our world is facing multiple challenges, and at a time when we should be joining together to overcome them, we seem more divided than ever. And all of this can make you feel helpless and hopeless. And that's why I wanted to bring this show back to the top. Devin Thorpe believes that we do have hope, and that one person can make a difference. He has huge goals and a big message because of a promise he made to himself at the age of 11. After spending many years in a corporate career within the finance function, he pivoted and took some time out to have a look at his life. And that set him out on a new path. And today, Devin speaks all over the world, including to people like Bill Gates, sharing his mission and training companies on crowdfunding and corporate social responsibility. He's also a regular writer for Forbes magazine and a podcast host. And in this best of episode, he shares how he got into paid speaking, how it enables him to fulfill his mission and what he does to put his talks together. And we also consider how Devon uses humour in his writing and speaking to increase the impact of his message. Hopefully, this is the tonic we all need at the moment if we're feeling anything like I am. And I hope you enjoy it. Devon Thorpe, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's a joy to be with you. Smashing. I'm really looking forward to our chat and to getting lots of uh, valuable uh, tips and insight from you. Except what I wanted to kick off by asking you this question, because you, you do a lot of different things. But I wanted to know, um, if you had to describe yourself as one thing first and foremost, what would that be? I, I describe myself as a champion of social good. Uh, everything I do is really about uh, finding the stories of those who are doing the most good in the world and sharing those stories. Uh, Everything else is a means to that end. And and, and I share those stories, not purely for the sake of uh, making people feel good, but in fact, uh, it's with an objective in mind. I really uh, hope, believe, work toward uh, the idea of ending poverty, disease, and climate change by 2045. And, uh, you know, that seems a, a long way off in some regards, but these are big problems. I was going to say, I'm you're not setting yourself small goals there, are you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And of course, I don't think I'm doing it. I think the people I write about are doing it. But I think by writing and talking and speaking about them uh, every chance I get, I make it easier on them. That's what, you know, that's what I think my job is, to, you know, grease the skids a little bit for them. Oh, that's that's brilliant. And, and I mean, you just mentioned climate change. There's all sorts of... It's, it's getting quite a challenge, isn't it? Particularly where you are to get that on the radar because there's a lot of people that don't even believe it's happening. Is that, is that frustrating for you? Yeah, it's, um, it's a weird thing uh, because we, we have a president here in the United States who, who has called climate change a Chinese hoax. 
which is just an absurd thing to say on so many levels. But, but there's a lot of polling data that suggests that a lot of people uh, either reject global warming altogether or reject the human causation of global warming. And so it's a really uh, challenging thing. And in my home state here in Utah, there are a lot. Right? The, it approaches a majority of the population reject that uh, um, climate change is caused by human activity. So uh, it is challenging uh, to get people thinking about that. Uh, one of the things that I like to point out is that if we do this right, and I think we will, we're going to create a world that instead of feeling like we have constraints on our energy use, I think we're going to create a world where energy is so cheap and abundant that we are crazy with the way we use it. I mean, I think we, we will pass through a period of time where we are really constrained, but Think about it. Uh, if we continue building fuel-free energy sources like wind and solar over the next 30 years or 25 years, what we get is uh, a world that is just awash in free energy, right? Because a windmill will never stop generating uh, electricity if we do a little bit of maintenance on it. A solar panel, golly, doesn't even need maintenance, really, almost none to keep generating energy forever. Now, I mean, I say forever, but, but you know, it's not inconceivable that solar panels will work for 100 years. It's not inconceivable that a windmill will work for 100 years. So, so the world will just be awash in free energy, it, you know, energy that's coming from equipment built and paid for decades ago. And in that world, the the low-cost energy is just going to be, uh, I mean, it's going to be a delightful world to live in. Uh, so some of the I, notions we have of what it will be like to live in a future without um, oil and coal uh, is wrong, right? Where th people think about um, sacrifices they will make. They won't make sacrifices. They will be driving faster, flashier cars, they will be flying more. I mean, it's the world is going to be like super awesome. It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because at the moment, I guess there's a lot of people protecting what they've got as well in this argument because, you know, the oil and the, you know, some the resources are in a, in a few hands and yeah. it's about control of, and, you know, making money in a lot of ways, which is possibly, you know, a cynical person might say that's one of the reasons why people are peddling the argument that there's no cause is because there's, there's people with a lot to lose if we do go to those free resources. And I guess you're pushing against that side yeah. of things as well. Yeah, I sometimes ignore that, and, but it's a very real thing, very real thing. I think you're right that there are these uh, entrenched uh, uh, incumbent uh, providers of energy that are very nervous about what the future will bring. Um, I, I actually have a lot of sympathy for that. Um, you know, if, if you have a uh, a coal-fired power plant that cost a uh, billion dollars to build, um, you know, you were planning to operate that plant for fifty years if suddenly you're told you have to decommission it and write it off, uh, you know, that could, I mean, it just changes the game for uh, you in a painful, painful way. And so I think we need to make accommodations. I think there's just no question about it. Um, public utilities, whether they're privately owned or community owned, I mean, we need to provide a mechanism yeah. that allows them to uh, keep assets on the books after they stop using them. Otherwise, they will keep using them. We have to give them a way to stop using them without writing them off. And I think the simple way is to require them to contract with other providers for electricity at a lower cost, provided that it's from a fuel-free source like wind or solar, and then uh, allow them to 
actually keep the, uh, you know, amortize the and depreciate the plant in just the way they were before they decommissioned. That's, that's my crazy idea. Um, well, we yeah. have to do this or they'll keep using them. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a pain-free transition. Well, now you used a couple of terms there which were a nice segue onto my next question. So you, you started out as a finance man. Can you tell me about the journey you've been on to arrive at what you do today in terms of being this champion of social good? Yeah, the story really starts when I was 11 years old. You know, back in 1976, uh, there was a dam about uh, 300 miles from my home that failed and uh, wiped out the town of Rexburg, Idaho. Uh, it's a small town, about uh, 13,000 residents, I think, at the time. And, uh, but the, the flood uh, resulted from the failure of this dam, damaged or destroyed about 80% of the structures. Well, people from all around the Western United States sort of rallied around. And I remember one time that summer, my dad came to me and said, Devin, I'm going up to Rexburg tomorrow to dig muck and mug it out of basements. Do you want to come? And I thought that sounded like a good time. <laughs> and so we got on buses at two o'clock in the morning and rode through the night, arriving at dawn. And then we worked all day, uh, you know, shoveling muck and mud out of the basements. And then we got back on the bus at night and came home and, uh, you know, it was an, an amazing experience. I, you know, the funny thing is that I look back on it, uh, I had such difficulty even lifting the shovel. I probably didn't do any good. I didn't actually make a difference, which is tragic, but, but I sure felt like I had. And so I vowed a vow that I would never miss an opportunity to serve others. Well, you know, I, as I got older and pursued a career, I ended up in a situation where not that I never did any good. I tried often to do good, to volunteer, to be of help. But um, I, when I, you know, I went on to have a successful finance career. And when I reached a, a point a few years ago where I got fired from the best job that I'd ever had, I decided to sort of channel that enthusiasm of my youth and uh, set a course that would focus on you know, doing good in the world. And, and um, you know, that I've, you know, tweaked and adjusted and refined, but uh, now, you know, you've, you've heard my mission and how I describe myself and uh, I'm committed to that. And so did you, I mean, did you at the time that, that, you know, you got fired, did you realize the opportunity straight away or did it, did you have a little bit of a sort of, you know, period of time where you're wondering what to do? Was it, or, and I guess another question is, were you, were you subconsciously moving yourself into a position where you could do this stuff? You know, it's interesting. Um, I had been studying Mandarin. And so, uh, and I had a friend who was in China. Uh, in fact, I had been in Hong Kong on business and met him for dinner, he and his wife, while I was in Hong Kong. And we talked about what they were doing. They were working as a volunteer or quasi-volunteer um, professors at uh, South China University of Technology for uh, uh, via a program through Brigham Young University. And, and uh, so when I got fired, my wife and I said, what are we going to do? It took us about a day to figure out that going to China with our friends for a year would be fun. We submitted an application and uh, got admitted to the program and spent a year in China. And it was a way for us to sort of give back and recalibrate yeah. uh, and to create space for us to think about what are we going to do? And that's how, you know, what I do now has sort of came about. Brilliant. Thank you for, for sharing that. So, so you've set up an organization called um, Your Mark on the World. Where, where does this fit into the, the sort of the journey and what was your goal in setting that up? Yeah, so the, the Your Mark on the World Center is the, the business name for my, for my activities. I have uh, uh, no formal employees, but I have, as so many people do, resources really around the globe. I, I love living in 2018. Uh, you know, I've got uh, a couple of people, Chandan and Abby, uh, in, uh, 
in Bangladesh that uh, do a lot of work for me and Jimmy in the Philippines and uh, other folks all around the world that I've used and uh, some with regularity, others with uh, less so. But, you know, I, it's uh, anyway, it's, uh, I love 2018. <laughs> <laughs> And and so as a basically that is the vehicle for doing the good that you try to do. And the next thing I wanted to ask you, you, you were very clear about the goals that you, you know, the sort of vision that you have for, for where you want to be or where you want the world to be in 2045. How did you choose those things? Or how do you choose, you know, on a day-to-day basis what to champion? Because I suppose at a granular level, there's more, you know, tang- you know, tangible projects that you back. So how do you choose those? Well, it, it's, it developed slowly. Uh, really, it, it took a long time for me to define it in exactly those terms. Um, for a long time, I said uh, I would talk about solving all of the world's big problems. But people kept asking me, well, what are the world's big problems? And I think, well, duh, you know, poverty, disease, and climate change, you know. We're, um, and so I've, I've learned to articulate it that way. Um, but it also then provides a guide for me. There are lots of things, and sometimes I will cover things that don't fit squarely into those uh, spheres. Uh, But I tend, my bias is to focus on things that do. Uh, And so the closer something is in terms of the the subject, the the activity that someone's doing, to addressing one of those three big concerns, the more likely it is I want to write about it and talk about it. And so it does serve as a guide for me in my work, both as a, as a journalist and as a speaker and, and in all the other aspects and manifestations of my world as a podcast host, et cetera. So, so it's, a, it's a mix potentially of you finding stories to share and people finding you with their stories to share. Is that, is that right? Yes, yes. You know, it's interesting... Um, because I uh, am a regular Forbes contributor, written over 500 pieces for Forbes, I get a lot of people reaching out to me and wanting me to write about them, uh, especially in Forbes. Um, but I also have found in recent months uh, that I'm sourcing a lot of ideas from Twitter now. Uh, and so I probably get kind of equal parts uh, Twitter ideas and and people that pitch me stories uh, via email uh, and everybody that pitches me on Twitter I I direct them to to email uh, in, in any case uh, yeah um, I get uh, a lot of ideas pitched to me and so I'm constantly trying to select from those ideas uh, where to go and what to talk about gosh it must be uh, must be challenge because I'm sure most of them are are worthy it's just picking the ones I guess so what's your criteria is it the ones that are going to have biggest impact or got most legs or how how do you make that selection it it is difficult I like to make sure that they're at least doing something and again there are exceptions but I like to see that they are um, that they have some sort of organization that uh, it's not just a one-time project uh, that there is you know, something going on. I, I like to see that it addresses one of those three areas, poverty, disease, and climate change. Um, so I, I, uh, I look for that. I like to see, um, I guess, recognizing my own biases, you know, raised in an ultra-white community, uh, raised uh, in a fairly patriarchal community, I make a conscious decision to look for women who are doing great things and people of color uh, so that I am consciously trying to overcome the the biases that uh, uh, I experienced in my community to make sure that I'm not, as much as possible, make sure I'm not guilty of of acting on uh, biases I was sort of raised with. Now, one of the things that you talk about is you know, actually speak about, I think, is profit through purpose. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that and what it is? Yeah, so I wrote a book called Adding Profit by Adding Purpose, and this is really about corporate social responsibility. And the uh, the thesis of the book is that uh, 
corporate social responsibility done well will increase profitability. And so that's what the book is about. It explains how you go about doing that. And, uh, and I have the opportunity to speak about that from time to time and really enjoy sharing that message because there are some clear strategies that will allow a company to do more good in the world, to be a part of solving, you know, uh, climate change, poverty, and disease, uh, and uh, increase profitability. I think uh, for a long time, people have thought of it as uh, almost a tax on profitability and an optional one at that. And so they have uh, limited, limited their, their good. And uh, I'm trying to get people convinced that it can really be a positive and that they need to engage. I think you're right. And I, and I just, I guess, with everything you do, what, what do you feel has been your biggest achievement or biggest impact, you've, where you've had the biggest impact so far? Well, that's a meaty question. I, um, I, I really feel um, inadequate sometimes to the, uh, the challenges that I've set for myself. Um, they are big challenges, right? I think you'd, you'd admit that, acknowledge that right off the bat here. Uh, uh, but um, the mere fact that you and I are having this discussion, Sarah, is evidence of my progress, right? It's not 2045 yet. We've got 27 years. Yeah. And, uh, and this uh, wonderful, delightful uh, show host in England has got me on her show, and we're talking about global issues across an ocean. Uh, apparently, I'm making progress. Uh, I'm reaching an audience uh, and helping people think more about these issues. Oh, that's good. And I know, I think you're being, probably being a bit modest there, but, I, you know, there's lots of, if people go and check out, you know, your mark on the world, they'll see, I think, some of the things that you're doing. And some of the things, I think, it's not just what you do, it's what you inspire other people to do. You know, there was that story about the lady with the hairdresser that, you know, is has done great work in her community. Yeah. You know, that's that's the the power of what you're doing, I think, is not, and I, I guess it's that thing of, you know, you, you you can go fast on your own, but with others you can go far. And I think that's what you're doing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. We've got we've got a long way to go, uh, but these are uh, this is an exciting, wonderful time to be alive. Brilliant. Now I've watched some of your speeches. I've read some of your blog posts and watched your videos. And and although they've got a serious message underpinning them most of them have got humor as well which i'm a massive fan on but is that something that's evolved or you developed what how does it work well you know it's an interesting thing uh you know sometimes we don't develop the the talents that we've got and we need to uh but my my father was truly uh, a funny funny man and he kind of, he didn't use that uh, to its full potential because um, he was not funny like some of us are kind of funny and make a joke once in a while. Dad was like, you know, he was seriously Johnny Carson funny, you know, David Letterman funny. I mean, he was, he was, um, he was funny. And uh, in fact, on his headstone that we just placed a, a month ago or so uh, he had us write this corpse is phil thorpe's <laughs> um you know he was just that kind of guy uh, his whole life he, he decided that his headstone would say that by the way when he was 10 years old and <laughs> in fact it does so uh he never lost that sense of humor but he never used it to its full potential so i've been you know wrestling with this question a lot this year uh, as my dad failed and then passed away that um, although many people would say of him that he was the funniest person they ever knew he had really in some ways uh, underutilized that power and I have I don't have my father's gift but I have a sense of humor and so I've been deciding very consciously to try to use that more. 
in the work that I do. Uh, because I think at the end of the day, I'm going to be more successful if I can figure out a way to make talking about these really important issues more pleasant. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the humor is great. And I think the most you know, the most important thing that you mentioned right at the start of our conversation was the power of stories. And I think, you know, combined, the two combined are so powerful, but has stories always come naturally? Has that always been a focus of yours? Have you seen the power of them from the start? Or again, is that something that you've discovered over time? You know, telling stories well is so incredibly difficult. I'm not sure I'm there yet. You know, 500 Forbes pieces later, I'm still trying to figure out how to tell a story but uh, I will tell you for sure, uh, without a doubt, you're right, that uh, storytelling is vitally important to sharing a, a thoughtful message in any way, shape, or form, whether it's spoken or, or written, uh, whether you're talking about making a short film, whatever it is, the story is the, is the centerpiece there. So I spend a lot of time uh, working on uh, the craft of storytelling. Um, the other the other thing that I've noticed is, and I guess it's it's come through right from the start of this conversation, is that you aren't afraid to be divisive. I think, or you know, polarizing, but gently. It doesn't. It's not like in your face. It is quite gentle. Have have you? Is this something that you've intentionally done, or is something that you've kind of? Have you always been happy to be that way? It's an interesting question uh, because I never want to be divisive. I believe in uh, bringing people together. I believe in uh, crossing aisles. I believe in uh, unifying people. But I also am passionate about solving world problems, uh, you know, poverty, disease, and climate change. And especially with climate change, but even with the others, there are times when people uh, disagree and take offense, uh, and, and I get that. Uh, so I, I would say I am never intentionally divisive, uh, but I do feel some principles are really important, and so I can imagine uh, that people are upset sometimes, and sometimes they even let me know that they're upset with the things that I say. I, uh, I, I really don't believe in divisiveness as a principle, as a guide, you know, as a guiding principle, or as a strategy for accomplishing things. Uh, so I do it more inadvertently than than intentionally. And I think perhaps it's my poor choice of words. I guess. It's more challenging. I think what you do, and there's again, there's a couple of things that I've seen. There was a um, a video about the way that you are as a man and women, particularly, is very, very prevalent and important to be, you know, aware of today. But you're tackling that head on. You're not shying away from it, and you took a stand. And wow. then, you know, on a lighter note, there was there was a one blog post that made me chuckle about Barry Manilow, and and. In that way, you're really sort of highlighting the the, peop, the way people are on things like Twitter. <laughs> Can you yes. tell me a bit more about that and what you were trying to do with it and how you put that together? Well, the 2016 presidential election in the United States was incredibly divisive. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, we got to the point where... Uh, it was difficult to talk to our friends who were not of the same political uh, orientation. And even within political parties, um, you know, the, you have liberals yelling at less liberal people for not being liberal enough, right? And, uh, you know, th there were some crazy things going on. And again, it was it was my attempt at satire to try and point out the absurdity of this crazy behavior that people would manifest of, of uh, you know, yelling at each other uh, because they had a different idea about, you know, what should the, you know, maximum federal tax rate be. You know, when we talk about, you know, Democrats and Republicans in the United States, there are very few things uh, on which the, the, there's really a big difference. 
most of what we're talking about is what should the ma um, marginal tax rate be, the top marginal tax rate on rich people be. You know, and, and you know, we, we argue about whether it should be you know thirty one percent or thirty nine percent. No one's really credibly arguing anymore that it should be fifty percent, and no one's really credibly arguing anymore that it should be twenty percent. We're talking about thirty one or thirty nine percent, and the idea that there's some moral difference between 31 and 39 is absolutely absurd. <laughs> and yet we argue about it. So uh, that was kind of what inspired uh, that, that Barry Manilow piece. And what was funny is uh, most people think it's about Barry Manilow. And <laughs> the piece has nothing to do with Barry Manilow. So anyway... I'm glad. I, I think you got what I was trying to say with it. I I, I hope someone else did. I think I think may, may, maybe maybe we're a bit more switched on to irony over here. Yeah, maybe <laughs> that, that that might be yeah. it. But yeah, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that because I think people should check it out. And I mean, we have our own big issues going on over here with relation to Brexit, which again. Yeah you know still tearing the country apart here um so i do sympathize <laughs> with that one okay so now i want to turn to your speaking so where does where does your speaking fit into what you do i mean is it a, a, the biggest part of what you do or you know a big just a big part of what you do speaking is really important uh because quite frankly it pays better than writing <laughs> that's the that's the i mean that's the the simple fact i reach more people with my writing i reach more people with my show than i'm likely ever to reach by speaking um but people will pay about three times as much per hour for speaking as for writing, and, and I'm talking about all the preparations and research and everything added in. Um, and there are obviously, you know, ranges on both tasks, but, but standing up in front of an audience and to give a speech pays a little better. And so it's important for me to be able to do some of that so that I can afford to do this work. Um, you know, we see all around the world, journalists are losing their jobs because the publishers are going slowly out of business. It's a scary time to be in the business of writing. Um, you know, newspapers especially are struggling. And uh, so that, you know, the written word uh, just isn't valued, uh, at least monetarily, like I wish it were. So the, the speaking is important in that regard. And I sure, I enjoy it. I have a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, and so that's, that's why I do it. And do you speak across all different industries and uh, or is there a particular one that, that you target? You know, it's it's funny as a speaker, you get invited to the, sometimes the, the strangest things. Uh, you know, I loved I've been invited to speak a couple of times at the United Nations and I'm proud of that experience. But I've also been uh, invited a couple of times to speak uh at conferences of burial vault manufacturers, <laughs> right? So it it runs, you know, kind of the, this extreme gauntlet. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking about crowdfunding, and I've done training on crowdfunding in in the United States, Russia, Mexico, Nepal. Uh, you know, I just go where I'm needed. Wow. That's cool. And and how long after you started this new, you know, um, journey, was it before you got your first paid speaking gig? And how did you do that? Did that come on the back of something else? Or were you actively sort of reaching out to get uh, paid speaking engagements at that point? Well, uh, shortly after I uh, launched this phase of my career, I started introducing myself as uh, an author and speaker. Okay. And... Uh, so a guy in my Rotary Club hired me to come speak at his event. <laughs> ah, nice one. So that's how that started. Uh, my first paid gig was that way. But, uh, you know, getting getting work is still a challenge. Uh, as busy as I am, I, I would like to speak more. Good. Well, you, any 
corporates out there listening, uh, get Devon in speak so we can start changing the world and making it uh, making it a better place. Brilliant. Great. And I wanted to find out how you um, put your talks together, you know, um, your process and how you make sure that they're engaging and relevant for the audience. Right. That's, that is a great challenge. And, you know, I'm hoping they're engaging. Um, I, I think the, uh, the key to the process for me has been um, getting the material piece by piece in front of live audiences. You talk about this on your blog with, with your comedy. There, there's nothing like being in front of a live audience to test the material. And, and you have to do that. Uh, I, I have learned painfully uh, that an audience will tell you how they're feeling about uh, your message. And uh, so, you know, I test, polish, hone, uh, and circle back. I ask for written feedback. Uh, you know, it's, it's a constant process. And then you watch yourself, you know, the recordings of your work to say, what could I have done differently? How did the audience react to the story this time? And how can I tweak it? To, where did I stumble over the punchline of that, of a joke, et cetera, et cetera. You just have to look at all those things and go back and keep doing them over and over. And then the last piece is coaching. I spent last weekend with one of the most successful speakers in probably the world you know, one of these guys that's making over a million dollars a year speaking and just sat at his feet for two days going over material and strategy and uh, practicing with him and uh, uh, getting coaching uh, to be a better speaker. So it's just, it's a constant process of trying to get better, hone the material, hone the message, uh, hone your delivery, et cetera, et cetera. So and I think that's an important point you made is that it, it, it's, you know, you always can. I think the best speakers are the ones that are aspiring to get better. And, you know, if you get complacent, well, I mean, I don't think any, even that person that's coached you, that's, you know, top of the game, I suspect that they, they only stay there because they want to get better themselves. Yeah. Every single, you know, he, he, he was telling me, he, he records every, speech and listens to every single speech again to make sure that he can go through and identify, you know, what he could do to improve. Um, and he's given a thousand speeches in his career. Uh, and, and he only has three speeches. Uh, so he, so he's given one of them like 600 times. Wow. And yet he's still, still working to polish and improve that speech. Brilliant. When have, when have you got your next gig? Are you gonna put, is it going to be a next level gig after this coaching? Yeah, yeah I'm hoping so. Uh, I'm booked in uh, L.A. Let's see. My next gig is actually in uh, New Jersey at Johnson & Johnson. I'll be speaking there. Cool. Uh, I'll be doing uh, a, uh, a short speech and then a longer workshop there for Johnson & Johnson on crowdfunding. And then, uh, I'll be talking about, uh, uh using, uh, cryptocurrencies for good at a conference in Los Angeles. And then I'm off to keynote a conference on tourism in Haiti. I'm wow. excited about that one. So. Excellent. Excellent. So you're all over the place. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the, the final question before I move on to some standard ones that I ask is in your journey as a speaker, What's the most important thing that you've learned? Um, I, I, unequivocally, it's these things we've been talking about, the, the need to constantly improve. You're just never good enough. And it's a painful reality for speakers. Uh, but you're, you're really not there because people tell you you're good. People are good. They're nice. They're kind. So if you give a speech to 100 people, 10 are going to tell you you were great if you are horrible. <laughs> you know you're good when you get booked again. Brilliant. So that's, that's really the test. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Devin, for, for the wisdom you've imparted so far. Now, I have some standard questions. Our uh, way. The first one is, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Oh, boy. 
speaking has given me an opportunity to travel to some amazing places. Um, you know, I, I had visited Moscow. Um, I guess my first visit there was 13 years ago or so, 13, 14 years ago. And I've had a couple of chances to go back uh, to speak at conferences on crowdfunding there. And it was such a different experience 10 years later. Um, that I've really fallen in love with that city. Uh, it, you know, amazing people, uh, spectacular architecture. Uh, it's just really an amazing place. Uh, partly because uh, even compared to just 15 years ago, it's a more Western place. So it feels um, like the best of both worlds with uh, more English speakers. Uh, it's easier to visit there, but you still have all of this amazing architecture and, uh, and spectacular history in the place. So, so speaking gives me a chance to travel that I just love. Uh, really grateful for those experiences. Really, thank you for that. And what's the worst gig you've had? Where, where's, which is the one that you think, oh, no, when you think about it? Well, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, there was one of those. And oh, it, it's just painful to remember. But I was hired to speak to a group once, um, and they asked me to do uh, something that was nearly impossible in my mind, but I said, oh, yeah, I can do it. They asked for a two-and-a-half-hour keynote speech. Wow. And um, so I put all my content together, <laughs> kind of crammed it into one one message, and uh, it did not go well. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it was painful. It was painful. So it was a very powerful lesson, uh, you know, about... The, the speaking business and uh so anyway that was, was that was that early on in your speaking career when you took that gig i wish it were I wish <laughs> it were. We're, we're always learning <laughs> I, i've never heard of a two and a half hour keynote i, I you know yeah. but... <laughs> and, uh, i have a new answer when someone asks me to do a two and a half hour keynote no <laughs> Or something stronger, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Okay, next question. Um, what is the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess if I'm uh, being honest, and I think that's what you want from me. Yes, please. Um, it would be the Bible. Uh, you know, I, I am a deeply religious Christian person. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and I think about, uh, you know, it, it's probably, you know, the, the New Testament. And, and I, I realize we live in a secular world. And, and uh, even setting aside questions of divine origin and uh, there's some powerful messages in in the New Testament uh, about uh, you know loving your enemy. I mean, boy, you know just just that one kernel right there. If you did nothing else, uh, think how different this world would be. Uh, so yeah, that probably had the greatest influence on me. Oh, that's great. You you are the second person that's that said that actually today in an, in an interview. Oh no. <laughs> I no, hope that's not a tried. It doesn't become a tried answer. No, not at all. No, I've never, I've never had it. It's like the buses in England. They, they, they never, they never come along, and then you get two or three at once. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's typical. That's brilliant. Thank you. And um, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever had, and why? Oh, best piece of business advice. What a great, what a great question. You know, I think it was, I, I, I was doing some work as an investment banker years ago and uh, helping these really crummy entrepreneurs do it with their business. And they, they really were just not impressive guys. I hate to say this. Um, but one of them taught me something that I thought was really profound and I've never forgotten. Um it's not super deep. I, I call it profound, but it, it, it probably doesn't rise to that level. But it's really important because, you know, some of us 
do the opposite. You know, we we set up rules and protocols, and you know, you, but it, his his guidance was this: always make it easy for people to give you money, <laughs> right? And, and sometimes we don't. You know, sometimes well, we don't take cash, or we don't take credit cards, or we don't take checks, or we don't take. Um, or you've got to pay through this, or you got to pay. So it was really a great lesson. And, and I, I try to do that because I, I'm so process oriented. Sometimes I want all my customers to use my process. And so I just try to remind myself, make it easy. You know, don't ever make it hard for people to give you money because they, you want. Anyway, I, I, I know it's it sounds simple, but uh, I think more of us err on that uh, than, than we want to admit. No, I think that's a really that's a really important piece of uh, piece of advice. I've heard something similar. I heard in, when I was in corporate, you know, make it easy for people to do business with you. Yeah. But I think that's taking it down to that level as well. That's that's right. really important. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. A last uh, question: If you could have any mentor, and they can be uh, alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Um. Unequivocal. Uh, know the answer to this question right now. Uh, Nick Kristoff uh, works for the New York Times as a Pulitzer Prize winner, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he won his first Pulitzer for uh, his work covering the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, you know, the he was there along with a lot of other world journalists to cover. Uh, I don't even remember what the big event was that got overshadowed by the Tiananmen Square massacre, but uh, he was there for that. Still works for the Times, you know, what is it, 30 years later. And um, I've been following him for years, read his books. Uh, he's a brilliant guy. and uh, But uh, he focuses much, as of, much of his attention on these three problems, right? Writing about climate change, global health, and uh, global poverty issues. And uh, it's just wonderful uh, to follow him and look at the impact he's had. And so I, I view him as a role model. And boy, if I could have anyone as a mentor, he'd be the guy. Cool. Thank you for that. Master. I've not, never had him before either. So I'll just, I'll, I don't know his work. I'll check it, check it out as well. Well, Devin, thank you so much. I know it's early in the morning as well where you are. So obviously it's just coming into the evening in the UK. Um, thank you again for your time, for your wisdom and, uh, and, and the, the, the mission that you've got. I think, you know, that deserves thanks. Yeah, I hope you achieve it as well, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> um, now, if people want to um, listen to the podcast uh, work with you, um, book you to speak or, or to do a workshop, what's the best place for them to go to to do that? Oh, golly. Um, they can start at devonthorpe.com or uh, even better maybe is to follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at devon, D-E-V-I-N-D-T-H-O-R-P-E, at Devin D. Thorpe. And there on Twitter, you, you'll see links to all of my articles, all of my podcasts, and it's easy to get in touch with me there. Uh, just reply or follow me. I generally will follow back, but if I don't, just uh, you know, ping me, interact with me in some way, and I'll, uh, it's easy to reach me. So that's, that's a great platform. Uh, if you're not on Twitter, visit devonthorpe.com and shoot me an email. Brilliant. I'll put the links in the show notes to the website and to your Twitter handle as well. And can they get hold of the book? Is it the book that you've written on there or can, is that on Amazon or? I've got six books on Amazon. So just search for my name on Amazon and all my books will come up. Brilliant. So again, thank you so much. Uh, please book Devon to speak. If you are a corporate organization, I'm sure you'll, you'll enjoy what you hear. And thank you again for your time today, Devon. Thank you, Sarah. You're great. Thank you. There you go. Did that make you think? Some of the things that we talked about have come into sharp focus today. And there are ways, though, that we can make a difference. I love that Devon is so passionate about and committed to making these goals happen. And I'm sure that he'd love to hear from you if anything he said resonated with you. Do check out the resources in the show notes. There's lots of sort of links to getting involved with stuff and also to uh, say hello to Devon. 
And one of the big things that I love about what I do is helping people who want to change the world and make a difference like Devon get a talk together that not only inspires but motivates people to take action. And that's why I'm running a masterclass to share my talk content blueprint that will give you the confidence to create a talk that gets people into action and that you're excited to share. It's in a couple of weeks time and you can find out more about it and grab a space at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass. Okay, well, thank you for joining me again. And if you get value from the show, do go and leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. And I'll be back next week. In the meantime, you know the drill. Don't forget to go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free snackable story challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.